0: Hello and welcome to PW cast, the children's book podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors and illustrators creating books for children and teens. I'm John Sellers, the children's reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Today I'm speaking with Peter Brown, the author-artist behind books that include Mr. Tiger Goes Wild, Children Make Terrible Pets, and The Curious Garden, as well as the Caldecott honor-winning illustrator of Creepy Carrots. His new picture book is My Teacher is a Monster, No I Am Not. Published in July by Little Brown, which is sponsoring this podcast. In the book, a boy named Bobby is having trouble seeing eye to eye with his teacher, Ms. Kirby. She has a tendency to stomp around and growl. She hates it when Bobby throws paper airplanes in class. And oh, she has green skin and the teeth and claws of a dragon. When they run into each other in the park on the weekend, both Bobby and Ms. Kirby get a chance to see each other in a different light. Thanks for speaking with me, Peter. Thank you very much for having me. So, was there a Ms. Kirby in your life back in uh,
1: elementary school days? There was there were actually several Miss Kirby's that kind of I combined to inspire the character in the book. But yeah, I had uh, several teachers growing up who were I was convinced one of them was a witch, not a monster. So I had a lot of inspiration from my own life to help me add some authenticity to this character.
0: Oh, excellent. And, and were you also the kid then uh, throwing paper airplanes?
1: <laughs> I was. I wasn't actually. I was a pretty well behaved kid, but. You know, even the best-behaved kids make mistakes, and so I definitely remember being yelled at occasionally, probably deserving it, but being a little rattled by the experience. Mm-hmm.
0: So you mentioned a little bit of uh, you know personal influence and that sort of thing, but was, was there a certain moment, or what was it else that sort of came together that led you to the idea for this story specifically?
1: You know, I do a lot of school visits where I'll go and spend a day at an elementary school giving presentations about what it is that I do for a living and about reading and books in and, and general. And a few years ago, I, I did a school visit at my old elementary school and came face to face with many of my old teachers who, amazingly, were still teaching there. You know, as a kid, I always thought these teachers were really old. And then <laughs> I find out, you know, as I get older, that actually they were probably in their 20s or 30s at the time. Mm. Um, so they're still teaching anyway. I came face-to-face with many of my old teachers, including a a couple who I had maybe not the greatest memories of. In that moment, they were incredibly sweet and friendly and had all these lovely things to say about me from when I was their student. And that's when it kind of dawned on me that a lot of us have these experiences in our childhoods of having teachers who we may not like, that we just misunderstand more than anything, and maybe they misunderstand us as well, and that's kind of what first got me down on the path to making this particular story. Yeah, I, w- I went to a Catholic school for elementary school, and I still remember the first time that I
0: saw my third grade teacher without her habit on, and I hmm. was—I don't think I even recognized her at first. I, I don't think I understood that she had hair, you know, even, yeah. or, or a head under there. <laughs> um, that's funny. But it, but it's, a, it's it's great that the, you know the, the teachers remembered you. It, it's sort of amazing that after decades of teaching, teachers have the ability to really remember you, remember so many kids. uh...
1: I will say, I sometimes wonder if they're actually being honest or if they're just saying what they thought they should say, because it's, you know, some of my teachers and I had great relationships and I could imagine them remembering me. Others, not so much. I could imagine them forgetting me after all these thousands of students or whatever it is that they have over their careers. Um, But they say it anyway. So I'm not totally convinced that they all remembered me, but that's what they said. So Mm. it was nice to hear it.
0: You know, the longer you know we're outside of school as adults, I feel like it's easy to forget just how largely teachers loom in the minds of children at the time. Do you feel the same?
1: Yeah, and I'll remember. You know, another kind of big element in this particular story is the fact that Bobby is seeing his teacher outside of school. And I remember a couple of times as a kid when I would see teachers in the supermarket, you know, and it would just blow my mind that they were not in school. And I I never really stopped, kids I don't think ever really stopped to realize that their teachers have lives outside of school, you know, when they get a little older perhaps. But in those first few grades of elementary school, we just assume they live there or we just don't know. We don't stop to really think about it a whole lot. And so when I would see my second grade teacher in the supermarket, it just blew my mind and I'm hoping that that experience will kind of captivate young readers also because as from whenever I mention this to little kids they you know they definitely share that that kind of feeling of you know if a first or second grader or third grader sees their teacher outside of school just not being confused and and just not sure what's going on who is this person why do they look like my teacher you know there's a lot of funny reactions to it
0: uh so now you could have easily kept the title a little bit simpler and just left it at my teacher is a monster uh was it important to you to get the teacher's perspective in there too
1: yeah it really was you know i'm an adult now Uh, at least that's that's what they tell me and um And I have friends who are teachers, you know, and I get to see a different perspective on this sort of situation of a teacher and a student bumping into each other outside of school. You know, I I actually spoke with a lot of my teacher friends while I was working on this book um, to kind of get their perspective on, you know, how do you handle a troublemaking kid in class who's sort of disrupting the flow, as well as what is it like to bump into your students outside of class. And You know, teachers are people, you know? I mean, teachers are people too, right? And so I love this idea that not only is the kid's, Bobby's mind blown by seeing his teacher outside of school, but the teacher, maybe her mind isn't blown, but she's not psyched about it. You know, she had her own, her whole Saturday plan. She's reading in the park. She just wants to enjoy her day off. And then all of a sudden, here comes this kid, not just any old kid, but the kid who's always disrupting class. And, you know, she's not thrilled. He's basically scared out of his mind because his teacher looks like a monster to him. And now there he is alone with her in this park. And so I wanted to kind of capture that same notion in the title of the book as well. It wasn't enough to just say my teacher is a monster. I thought it would be funnier and more kind of true to life to have that little second line of, no, I'm not. You know, we're seeing the teacher and the boy basically arguing on the cover of the book about whether or not she is actually a teacher my mom is a teacher too. I have a lot of teachers in my family, so I think maybe that's related to why I was so interested in conveying the teacher's perspective on things as well.
0: Now what sort of input do your editor Alvina Ling have for you? Were there any big changes uh, to the book along the way?
1: This is one of those books that I started years ago and then got distracted by other projects and then came back to again you know maybe a year and a half, two years ago to finally complete. And the first sketch dummy, the first sort of mock-up that I made years ago, uh, was very different than than the book as it is now. And I remember when I came back to the book on that second round, um, I, I met with Alvina, and we talked about it, and we both agreed that it was good but it could be better and some of the things that i did through sort of brainstorming with with Alvina my editor was redesigning the characters also rethinking what happens you know they have this sort of little adventure together in the park and a lot of the details for that their time together in the park changed the tone of the book kind of changed a little bit too i mean it was always going to be funny and about this kid seeing his monster teacher outside of the park but i think i emphasized the teacher's point of view a little better in the second version so you know she and i have a great relationship alvina and i have been working since my very first book flight of the dodo and uh we're we're good pals we're neighbors now she's lives lives in my neighborhood and um we have a great relationship where we can just go and hang out and have dinner or whatever and chat about these things and it's hard to know exactly whose idea this came from or that you know i mean we get into these moments where we're just sort of throwing you know spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks and uh those can be kind of fun
0: now, art-wise for the book, uh, I feel like you continue to try new things with each different book. Creepy Carrots had this real noir feel. You had these cut paper elements in Children Make Terrible Pets and You Will Be My Friend. Um, on your website, you say it's partly because you get bored. Um, <laughs> but did you, um, did you experiment at all with the illustrations for this one, especially since you say you sort of were rethinking the look and, and feel of it?
1: Yeah. Well, you know what happened in the meantime— as I said, I I started the book years ago and then came back to it. And in that window of time, I made a couple of books. Creepy Carrots is one. I also made uh, Mr. Tiger Goes Wild. And for the Mr. Tiger book, I tried a new illustration technique involving watercolor and ink shapes, kind of scanned into Photoshop and adjusted and colored. And I, I was really happy with the finished result. So when it came time to return to my teacher's monster. I had just finished Mr. Tiger and was kind of really enjoying how that work turned out and the process, so I decided to stick with that technique. Originally, I was thinking the book would look more like Children Make Terrible Pets, which is more of a pencil drawing and cut paper thing. But after having the success and the fun with Mr. Tiger, I decided just to to use more of an illustration style similar to that which again meant that I had to go back to those original drawings and redesign them with a new illustration technique in mind so it was basically I had sort of a structure a basic structure an idea for a story from years ago and but other than that I, I pretty much overhauled the entire thing
0: I feel like we should talk a little bit about Bobby's hair. Uh, it's a little <laughs> bit it's a little bit Cameron Diaz and there's something about Mary and it's a little bit <laughs> a, a, it's a little bit my hair
1: is sticking straight up cuz I just oh, saw a monster. Man. How did you land on this uh, very distinctive hairstyle? You know, I I think my my books are going to gradually become more and more stylized. You might say all of my books are fairly stylized, but I'm I'm looking at a lot of more sort of mid-century illustration as my inspiration these days and They get away with all kinds of crazy designs and things that don't really make sense, and yet they still read, you know, the hair still reads as hair, or this, you know, plant reads as a plant, even though you've never actually seen a plant that looks like this before. So I felt a little liberty to just kind of have some fun with the character designs. And I wanted Bobby's expressions to be, you know, a lot of my books, the facial expressions are a big part of the storytelling. You know, there's some scenes in My Teacher's a Monster where, you know, they're sitting on a park bench together, not saying anything. And have very different facial expressions. And the whole story is being told with their facial expressions. And so those details really matter. Details like the design of their face and their hair and their limbs and their clothing. And I wanted Bobby to look terrified. (laughs) Not not threatened. Not like he actually thought anything dangerous was going to happen. But just just really uncomfortable. (laughs) And, and having his hair kind of stick up straight up in the front felt like a good way to convey that. And then I fell in love with that design so much with his hair looking all weird and sticking up that I decided that, you know, maybe I'll just have his hair be that way all the time. Maybe he's always a little of a bit of a spaz and his hair is always kind of, you know, (laughs) sticking up in weird ways. And uh, so that's kind of how I fell into that design. Do you feel like you have more freedom when you're
0: uh, illustrating one of your own books as opposed to one that somebody else wrote?
1: I do. I do feel like I have more freedom. Not to say that I'm sort of handcuffed by other people's stories, but my process when I'm working on one of my own books is really hard to describe, you know. Most people assume you write a finished Text and then you go back and you visualize it with sketches and then final artwork. But the truth is, and I th- I'm pretty sure this is true of most of my author illustrator friends, is it's like kind of all over the place. Some days we're writing, sometimes we're drawing, most days we're doing both. And any given day, I could just be just all over the map as far as what it is that I'm actually doing on the particular book project. And so one of the things that happens when I'm both the author and the illustrator is, you know, the words really can modify the, the pictures, but the pictures can also make me rethink the words, you know. I might have a, a certain sketch that I do in my sketchbook that re- makes me realize, well, this is what I want the scene to look like, and if the scene looks like this, then I don't need this entire paragraph. This whole paragraph is now unnecessary because of this particular sketch that I just thought up, and I can go in and just delete that text altogether. I can't do that if it's another author who's written those words. I might be able to suggest that we don't need these words or say... And hope that maybe that they agree, but at the end of the day, that's not my decision to make. So I do feel freedom when I'm working on my own projects. Like, I can just cut and paste and delete here and add stuff there, and it's just kind of a free-for-all until I finally get something that I, feel, that I think feels just right. I like illustrating stories for other people because it uses kind of a different part of my brain. Instead of thinking about every possible detail of the entire visual story that I'm trying to tell, I can just focus solely on the visual elements and not bother myself with the other stuff. It's almost like just the fun part, you know. I get to just make pretty pictures and make sure they do their job that they need to do. But when I'm doing everything myself, it can be mostly fun, but it can be kind of agonizing with all the responsibility of being both the author and the illustrator. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now your first book, as you mentioned, uh, flight of the Dodo
0: uh, was published, I think in 2005. So you're kind of coming up on a 10 year anniversary and the, uh, yeah. the business. What's it like looking back at that,
1: that this sort of trajectory of the last 10 years? Wow. It's, um, I've come a long way. You know, I've, I've been really, I've been really fortunate. Most of my books are published with little Brown and company. And, um, and they've taken really good care of me, you know. Basically, right out of the gates, they uh, they took me seriously and, you know, spent time and energy on all, all of my books. So I have a lot to be grateful for. And, you know, every book I think has kind of built my career, moved it in a real sort of forward trajectory. You know, um, I've had a couple big books over the years. The Curious Garden was probably my first big book. Um, but I follow that up with some other books that did well and, you know, were received critical praise and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I try not to worry about those things, but the publishers sure do pay attention to that stuff. You know, so I've, I've, I feel pretty, pretty good about the first 10 years of my career. I, I will say I have some friends who are incredibly talented, and I've made maybe 10 books. I usually make about one book a year, so I have, you know, roughly 10 books under my belt. And uh, I have friends who I feel like make 10 books a year. So on the one hand, I feel proud of what I've done. On the other hand, I can't help compare myself to these ridiculously prolific authors and illustrators who are just cranking these things out left and right. So, you know, it's good. It's a healthy pressure. It makes me want to kind of keep working hard and keep trying to prove myself to, to myself and to everybody else, you know, because I'm in this business for the long haul. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask
0: about what it was like, you know, getting that phone call telling you you'd uh, received a Caldecott honor for uh,
1: creepy carrots. <laughs> yeah, well, that was a fun day. You know, there's this thing called Caldecott buzz, which is when you have a book that people are talking about, librarians and, you know, publishers think that this book has got a chance at winning a Caldecott silver or a Caldecott gold. And Creepy carrots did not have any of that, <laughs> which in retrospect was really great because I slept like a baby the night before. You know, I wasn't thinking about anything except my morning coffee the next day. And so I woke up, I was doing my morning routine, sitting on my couch, reading and drinking my coffee. And then the phone rang from Seattle and I was like, who would call me at from Seattle at six o'clock in the morning? It was nine o'clock in New York, but six o'clock in Seattle I still hadn't Didn't dawn on me And then I answered the phone And heard all these Giggling librarians On the other end And uh, you know They told me what was going on And that was That was great But I didn't see that one Coming at all And I've you know Had a couple of other books That have had Caldecott buzz But it didn't work out And I've had a lot of friends Who've had these experiences So I'm pretty excited That that I didn't have Any of that uh, Sort of weighing on me Leading up to the Caldecott that year
0: So what's next for you Do you have some uh, Projects lined up
1: Yeah, well, you know, we're kind of gearing up for the release of My Teacher's a Monster, but um, aside from that, I'm working on my first children's novel for a middle-grade novel. It doesn't have a title yet, but that's basically all I'm working on these days. You know, it's funny, in the beginning of my career, I used to call myself an illustrator who writes, meaning that I'm more of an artist than a writer. And these days, I feel very sort of equally balanced between writing and illustrating, and so I thought I might as well try my hand at doing the author thing and so i'm uh i'm working on this middle grade novel which will hopefully come out in the fall of 2015 but there's still a lot to figure out so i'm a little reluctant to discuss it too much sure sure
0: well uh, congratulations again on this new book and thanks again for speaking with me my pleasure thanks for having me once again i've been speaking with peter brown whose new book is my teacher is a monster no i am not published by little brown and out in july thank you for listening to pw kidscast